Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Robbie's been doing a, um, an awesome job doing some solo podcasts, not solo podcasts, but interviews with, with various people. Um, everyone check them out. Alex Jones's wife, Kelly, very fascinating interview. Um, and Tom Secker um, about the Screepall incident. So definitely encourage everyone to check those podcasts out. Yeah, I've been holding down the fort while you've been uh, <laughs> we've been busy in the middle of your move and, and everything. Um, and yeah, the interview with Kelly Jones was was extremely fascinating. And um, we'll, we'll talk about it a little more detail later because um, there's been some some news involving that. So, but let's get into it. Let's get into it. R.I.P. Barb Bush. Barbara Bush died. Uh, very tragic story that an old, you know, wife, basically her, her biggest crowning achievement was just being the wife of a war criminal. So I don't know why the Women's March Twitter and all these, you know, people who are co-opted by the Democratic Party want to praise her. I guess <laughs> just keeping alive that bipartisan, bipartisan praise for war criminals from both Democrats and Republicans. And you, you know, look no further than the funeral um, where Melania Trump is just sitting there hanging out with Michelle and Barack Obama. I mean, it's just weird. If I were Barack Obama, I feel like I would not want to be hanging out with like a woman who is married to the guy who basically got popular saying that I was a secret terrorist not born in the U.S. because I'm black. Just odd. It's very odd. And this is what happens after a certain amount of time passes. All these war criminals and all these horrible ex-presidents and their families just get rebranded into being like heroic, you know, these figures that we're supposed to love and admire. It's very predictable. This always happens. When George H.W. Bush dies, H. Bush Sr., um, it's going to be the same thing. But what's weird is I feel like when Reagan died, it wasn't like people didn't really care that much. It was like the Republicans were the ones trying to rebrand him and it was working. It seemed kind of effective for there in their sphere, but not like at large like this. It feels like this is almost to me, it's, it seems like this is partly because Trump is so awful to so many people and because people like George W. Bush have already been able to be rebranded this quickly that these like organizations like the Women's March maybe feel more comfortable now coming out and praising Barbara Bush. It's, it's odd, I think, but I think that has something to do with it. What do you think? Yeah, like 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 they hate Trump so much that they just want to praise every other president. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, no, it's gross. And when when H.W. Bush dies, we're going to talk about how great the CIA was and the Democrats are going to be leading the, the fight on that narrative as they are right now. Another interesting <laughs> turn of events was that, you know, Kanye West gets back on Twitter from, I guess, producing really shitty clothes to talking about Candace Owens. This is a woman who's just a token black woman who's used by right wingers and the alt right. Um, as someone who says, you know, black people are not oppressed, get over it. Get over your victimhood mentality. And I'm not going to get into all the crazy stuff that she says, but she's basically the communications director for Turning Point USA. This is a ridiculously terrible conservative outfit that is essentially just like a 
astroturf organization um, for like right-wing billionaires like the Koch brothers. And I mean, they even have sponsorships from the NRA. Um, they're close with Project Veritas. They're the ones who organize a lot of these college campus, you know, Berkeley um, speeches with Milo Yiannopoulos. And they're also funded by Dennis Prager, just like the worst of the worst, you know, and, and their their front man is this guy named Charlie Kirk, who is just the biggest douchebag in the world. He He's the quintessential doughboy. Um, just totally absurd that Kanye West out of all the people in the world would say that he likes how this woman thinks and then proceeds to go on this bizarre diatribe about, uh, the, the Dilbert guy, Scott Adams and just all this stuff about how, how woke he is. And I mean, just going down the rabbit hole in the worst way possible, And we already knew that he, you know, there were signs of this when he met with Trump right after the inauguration, when he did a concert that ended very prematurely, like a lot of his concerts did from that tour. It only went for like 20 minutes. And then he did about 15 minute rant about why he wished Trump would, or like why his guy Hillary didn't win and all this stuff and how he thinks Trump is like going to do good for the people. And people were horrified back then. And then he immediately had to like uh, voluntarily commit himself so that's like when all that happened originally. And there was even rumors that he came out at one of his concerts and started talking about Pizzagate, yet there was no video for it. So at the time, I just wrote it off and thought, well, that's probably just some Pizzagate conspiracy guy like trying to push the narrative even more and making up the story about Kanye. But now kind of in retrospect, now that I've seen him you know, echo- echoing a lot of these generic alt-right narratives and latching onto these people, I think it's actually possible that he did now. Oh, of course he did. So, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah, and he you mentioned the did. clothes that Kanye's, um, you know, ma- got made. I mean, they were made in a in uh, uh, with slave labor. You can read about that online as well. But yeah, it's really, uh, it's really sad how powerful this like right wing pedophilia obsessed red pill shit is to like weak minded, like younger people. I mean, but I mean, I guess Kanye West almost has like the mind of a child. So he's like young in that sense. So this is like very influential, powerful information for him that it's just like, it's just, you know, it's red pilled him as these alt-right 4chaners are all saying now. Um, It's uh, very fascinating Um, because, yeah, and as I I don't know if you mentioned already um, that Roseanne uh, tweeted to him bingo in response to him talking about uh, the thought police which I guess is re- in a reference to liberals or something. Yeah, this is one day after <laughs> Jacobin quoted him and was like, wow, Kanye's a secret Marxist because Kanye's just incoherently rambling Jacobin on is a Twitter. secret fucking, I mean, it's a total fucking <laughs> shit show. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's a total shit show. And yeah, Roseanne Barr, bingo. This is a woman who is clearly mentally unstable, who used to joke about how she popped pills and was crazy back in the day, but now she actually takes herself seriously. I mean, no one can flip that dramatically from being a virulent anti-Zionist talking about how Israel's a Nazi state to then literally like working with Stand With Us, the arm of the Israeli government, and is now going to be their spokesperson for this big event that they're having. I mean, that's how Wait, desperate what? they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how desperate Stand With Us is, is that this is the same um, they group can't that find tried anyone. to smear you. Yeah. Yeah, they can't find anyone else to represent them. So they want Roseanne Barr, a woman who stood next to um, or who did a photo shoot with burnt cookies pretending that they were Jews coming out of an oven dressed as Hitler. She's clearly insane. The fact that people are even taking her seriously is just sad because it shows you how exploitative these organizations are, that they would actually prey on mentally ill people to try to propagate their Hasbro bullshit. 
and and her saying bingo to Kanye is par for the course. I mean, this is a woman who is is shouting from the rooftops, QAnon. Yep. QAnon, QAnon. Watch out for watch out for the pedo bust. I mean, I, I see people every day still say, wait, just wait, just wait. It's like, how long are you gonna wait until Q? Um, comes out of the woodwork and actually reveals who, I mean, it's just, they'll just believe anything. So it's sad. I mean, the people who believe this shit, I just feel like they're not all there. It's like wish fulfillment, like religion. It's kind of like a dogmatic, like faith-based thing at this point. I mean, yeah, it is very, very surreal. I mean, the fact that Roseanne was talking about QAnon and congratulating Trump for busting all the sex trafficking rings it's interesting because this ties into what I interviewed Connor Habib about um, a few weeks ago on this podcast. This whole I, this whole satanic panic revival about pedophilia in this country and sex trafficking um, is being pushed by real politicians. But yet on the other side, you have like all these right wing conspiracy people, you know, um, having this all this panic over this idea of like secret pedophile networks and tra- child sex trafficking. Um, and apparently Kanye West is like really like involved in this sort of like conspiracy world now. Um, and it's a very bizarre time we're living in. I mean, it is, I'm trying to think of another example of like when like random celebrities started to get like red quote unquote red pilled. And there was sort of a little moment where like, you know, a lot of celebrities started speaking out about nine 11 and, and getting into that stuff. And then that died very quickly. Um, because all of them sort of got marginalized and smeared or they just sort of went back into their into hiding. But yeah, now it's, it's a weird thing that this is becoming so mainstream. I mean, I talk to regular conservatives all the time and I just got messaged by someone uh, a couple of days ago who was like, you know, I, be- I agree with you on all this shit. You talk about um, how QAnon is like a, you know, like some kind of wish fulfillment uh, conspiracy thing that that's like a way to divert all your faith into Trump into this weird weird thing and then you're like my but my uncle seriously believes in all of it and I don't know how to like convince him out of it and he's like I don't know where he's getting it from but he's like a full fully devoted to this idea that Trump is about to round up all the pedophiles and like take down all the deep state because the deep state are all pedophiles too I mean it's the big it's tent approach of right wing media that has now encapsulated the craziest outliers of the conspiracy fringe movement the QAnons the deep state narrative I mean it's it's embraced by basically mainstream conservatives at this point I mean look at Hannity going running with the Seth Rich thing I mean that's just the tip of the iceberg but I think it's just legitimized it in the eyes of basically every right winger because he also they ran want with to QAnon. absolve Trump he want he they want to absolve Trump from everything. He ran with QAnon. Holy God! Sean Hannity tweeted out QAnon. Yeah, he either retweeted someone or actually said it. I mean, we're also talking about Michael Flynn and his own son. Right. We're also dog whistling to Pizzagate. I mean, his own son yeah, exactly. blatantly talks about Pizzagate all the time on Twitter. His dad was totally dog whistling to Pizzagate shit constantly, like leading up to the election. Um, very a uh, very odd. Picasso's dead. Steve Jobs is dead. I'm dead. (laughs) Kanye went on Ellen and he did like the most esoteric, bizarre breakdown. Vic Berger did an amazing remix of Kanye West on Ellen. Check it out. Um, And then The Root, which is a really good publication, just kind of talks about how absurd this whole thing is. I mean, they call Kanye an infantilized, tantrum-throwing, self-important dickwad. 
who's been deluded by himself and through osmosis via the Kardashian clan, that he's a truth-telling prophet. And you can see just by these rants, and we won't really stick on him too much. But really, I mean, it's absurd to think that, you know, we're living in this post-racial society, that, um, that black people are not oppressed. It's just gross. It's like these people who are really well-off, who are multimillionaires like Kanye West, who think that, you know, black people are, are, are floundering in self-pity and they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but they never mention the fact that, you know, their bootstraps either don't exist or they've been snipped before they even had a chance. Um, and, and pointing out that black people are bootstrapless is not asking for a handout or playing the victim. It's, it's a fact. And someone like Kanye West is just, it's just disgusting because he really is adulated by millions of people and, I just hate seeing these alt-right assholes get get signal boosted so hard because it just legitimizes them again and again and again. And Turning Point USA is, again, it's probably the most disgusting and mockable conservative front that exists. I mean, we're talking about an organization that literally stages protests on college campuses where its members wear adult diapers and slam little baby toys and put themselves in a playpen to protest liberal thought police. You know, all the, all the, all the thought police on these conservatives who are not given enough spaces, even though they have fucking editorials talking about how marginalized they are all across corporate media. And then they have talk back pieces on CNN and MSNBC about how marginalized they are. I mean, Charles Kirk is going on these networks all the time to talk about how conservatives are marginalized on college campuses. It's a completely fake PR scam that essentially is backed by billions of dollars. I mean, I just saw the breakdown of the funding of Turning Point USA. It's like outrageous, the money that they have. Yeah, and it's um, it really just goes to show that the conservatives and these weird, like, you know, so anti-social justice warrior conservatives who, you know, make everything about how the left is is um, is destroying this country, they're, the one thing consistent about them is they're always really bad at humor and jokes. <laughs> and these like perform these things where they dressed up as babies and were like in a playpen. Sounds like the type of like horseshit political antics you'd hear about people doing like in the 1960s or something. Like it's like very unevolved, like base level, dumb bullshit. And it kind of just reminds me of like people like Steven Crowder and just like Absolutely. hack comedians like like Jeff Dunham um, and these like sort of right wingers you see who try to be, um, you know, comedians like Owen Benjamin. I don't know if you saw this oh, meltdown recently. Absolutely. Tell him what happened and how much money he's making now on Patreon. It's disgusting. This guy named Owen Benjamin basically is having a manic psychotic break and he's acting like he just, because he wants to say anything unfiltered on Twitter while in the middle of having this psychotic meltdown that he's like expressing his free speech and that he's just like, a he's like testing the boundaries of free speech and trying to protect people's first amendment rights. He's like turning his own manic episode into a, a political stand. And even <laughs> some of these like alt-right friendly comedians I've seen in discussions with him. Um, I watched a podcast where like, he was completely outnumbered and these people tend to lean conservative and they were like, Owen, I, I don't understand why you're choosing to die on this hill. This just seems really dumb. Why would you just go on Twitter and just say the N word a bunch of times? And it's not even a, like a funny joke. Even it just seems like you're just, you're literally going psychotic. Like they were worried about him <laughs> but he, after he got kicked off Twitter for going on these racist tirades and then ending the racist tirades. Finally, in the end, like a, a week straight of talking about David Hogg's pubic hair. I mean, literally a week straight, constantly tweeting to David Hogg about his pubes. 
and then writing a song even about it called Soy Boy. They're they're turning him into a free speech hero. Um, and they're they're apparently donated thousands of dollars to his Patreon after he, got he makes like off nine thousand dollars a month now. Yeah, on Patreon, incredible. Yeah, I mean the Owen Benjamin thing is it was uncomfortable and just humiliating. And then I just saw how much money he made off it. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is the formula. You act like a complete psycho. You you reveal your manic episode. You say a bunch of swear words and, and the N-word and you harass the Parkland shooting survivors. And then you can just get, um, you just get, you know, your lifestyle paid for by dumbass conservatives who think that you're a hero. So it's an actually brilliant formula that they've manipulated this vacuous audience to just steal all their money. What's interesting is, and this is something that um, a Twitter user, um, he said the other night, and it really hit me. He said, it's always seemed to me that unlike the left or the center, the alt-right is largely captivated by figures who rise high, have their, quote, moment, and then are replaced in quick succession. Milo was top dog last year until a bit after Berkeley, then PJW really rose only to be displaced. So it's like you just have it. It is sort of almost like they're like these performance artists who grab press and headlines by doing things that are like blatantly manipulative and dishonest. They're charlatans, and it's it is interesting just to see how much they do resemble this sort of victim mentality mindset that they claim to be so against. They're such hypocrites at their core. I mean, even people like Jordan Peterson, who claims he's not an alt right person that he's just sort of like you know right of center slightly he he went on this long rant on the bill maher show of course bill maher invited jordan peterson on Mm because bill maher's such mm -hmm. a predictable fucking douche even though jordan peterson's like a christian he was like i love everything you have to say you're extremely common sense it's like aren't you like a really hardcore atheist but oh well yeah but i mean jordan peterson um went on this long rant that you know seemed very earnest about he was like you know I watch your country over there and it's very dangerous. You know, it seems very unsettling, like how much vitriol a lot of you people like place on, you know, push towards like people who voted for Trump and that you, you see them as unsophisticated and dumb. And, you know, a lot of those people really don't like that. You know, you guys think that about them and, and they're not going to take it anymore. You know, kind of almost like acting like that's a serious problem that these like liberal coastal elites sneer at Trump voters. Yet his whole platform is about how liberal snowflakes like type people are overly sensitive and just need to grow up and grow a pair, you know? And it's like, what a fucking hypocritical fuck. It's right there. You're a fucking hypocrite, dude. Right, right. You, you're basically saying that, Oh, don't, don't sneer at these people who voted for a monster because they're too sensitive and they're going to, they're having their feelings hurt. What was uh Dave Rubin calls himself a classical liberal and you know, all these people try to pretend like they're, you know, I'm, I'm actually a liberal and I can't stand the left. They're fucking crazy. It's like he donates to Steven Crowder's rebel media channel on Patreon. I think it Dude, was discovered. He's, he's speaking on Turning Point USA's like ca- campuses, like opening for Ben Shapiro yeah. and whatever. And he's calling himself a classical liberal. Well, so does PJW on his bio. He's yeah. like, I'm a classical liberal. So the one thing these people have in common, I wouldn't call Dave Rubin alt-right. I, d- I definitely wouldn't go that far. But the one thing that he has in common with people like Crowder and PJW and all these people is that he's a same, similar type of performance artist charlatan. 
who's mm-hmm. latching onto this zeitgeist, this anti-left energy, this resentment that's basically just like an out-of-control, emotional, reptile brain rage cloud. I mean, that's really what it is. It's and just, Dave Rubin said he's going to be the first person that holds Trump's feet to the fire. And he has not said one negative thing about Trump. In fact, he just finally came out and revealed his true colors, H.A. Goodman style, and said he's voting for Trump in 2020 on his podcast. So thank you for at least coming out of the closet now, classic lib. What a, what a, these people are just so fucking phony. It's just this, such a lack of authenticity, you know, yeah. involved in this. And it's just, it's just sad and that's why I feel like it attracts a lot of these younger, more disaffected conservatives. Because I think a lot of older conservatives are still content listening to people like Michael Savage and the like. You know, they haven't moved on from that. But a lot of these younger conservatives, they get really inspired by this. Um, it is it is weird. I mean, I almost feel like we're at this precipice where it feels like they're about to have sort of their zeitgeist moment. In the mm-hmm. same way that the left, you know, the, the, the far left sort of had it during the, the late in, end of the Bush era. That it feels like their narratives are just going to coalesce into this giant, like, you know, narrative about how the liberals are all pedophiles and how Trump is going to, like, basically break the matrix and, like, the Kekistan is, like, going to rule. You know, it's just, like this weird thing, like, like forming. Um, but I don't, I mean, their zeitgeist moment's going to be, like, this fucking, like, inverted, like, like, bizarro Superman version of, like, the actual zeitgeist movement, like, on the left. <laughs> so, I'm not saying that in a positive way, and I actually like the, most of the stuff in the zeitgeist film. I mean, it's just the easiest thing in the world. If you're gay, if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, I mean, you will become viral because there's a huge vacuum to be filled that Trump supporters will lift you up and, and make you a celebrity, just like that Joy Villa woman who is just a complete charlatan, who's a Scientologist and who, you know, just last year was saying that she's pro-choice and then shows up at the at the awards ceremony or gr- the Grammys wearing a giant fetus dress, um, <laughs> like trying to call attention to how she's pro-life now. And it's like last year you showed up at the Trump dress and then you got all this praise and a ton of people bought your albums. I mean, it's just so easy. Just like this Candace Owen woman. It's just like, damn, it's easy. And that's, and that's part of why, and I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit here. That's part of why um, I get so upset when a lot of these like alt-right charlatans try to make it seem like they're genuinely anti-war and that they want to reach out to like people on the left and work with them. It's like, because of the fact that they're such dishonest charlatans, who have basically essentially stolen from the left anti-imperialist movement this anti-war rhetoric, or actually even even watered it down from like libertarian people like Ron Paul. If you listen to Ron Paul's anti-war stances, they're very consistent, you know, across the board. They have consistency. They're very principled. The alt-right just takes pieces from that and then like uses it to create this sort of manipulative narrative. Like like for instance, Tucker Carlson on his show will say things like. Uh, you know, China's a real threat to us. So why are we going after Russia? Or why are we doing regime change with Assad when like Maduro might deserve regime change in South America and Venezuela? This is like what the alt-right and the right wing does to these talking points. They're not legitimately moralistically against war. So like, that's part of why it bothers me so much that people are like, no, why, like, why are you criticizing Tucker Carlson? He's one of our allies. Like, don't go after him. It's like, but he's like watering down the message and using it to actually say that like people like Maduro should have regime change done to them in Venezuela. And it's just like, that's not the way that this should be going. And I just really discourage people from letting them siphon our energy. Yeah. The anti-war left is very small. 
but don't let them take any of our energy and use it and make it their own. Don't let them do that because they're not like in it for the, for the right reasons. Yeah, when I saw that Tucker Carlson ran, I was like, damn, that was epic. And then I saw another one where he followed up and then said, this is why we need to basically address China. He was like, they're trying to distract us away from the real threat, China. Yeah. I was like, what? And he said the establishment is is trying to get you um, not to look at China because the establishment's <laughs> all in bed on China. And he was kind of implying that the neocons are part of the establishment, yet in the PNAC 2.0, the Foreign Policy Initiative's mission statement, it says that we need to face rising and resurgent powers like China and Russia. Yeah, what does he think the Asia pivot's about? He, I mean, come on. It's it's very, very odd that... Oh, and then also Tucker Carlson, you know, is a quote-unquote neocon slayer, you know, who is even using terms like false flag when regards to the Assad chemical weapons attack, which I was shocked by. But then, you know, he'll he'll destroy Max Boot um, and, and Bill Crystal and people like that. But then he'll have on like another PNAC neocon who happens to be pro-Trump, Bill Bennett, and laugh with them and joke with them for about a half hour straight about how great of a person George, uh, or sorry, Barbara Bush was. And I almost see Tucker Carlson like Keith Oberman in a weird way. It's like for this moment in time, this person who shouldn't be saying all these, speaking all these truths about certain issues is allowed to. But when you really look at it's like Keith Oberman compared to Tucker Carlson, I mean, Keith Oberman was so much better in comparison to Tucker Carlson. So really, this is what we're left with. This is really scraping the bottom of the barrel here. And it really does make me feel like we're in a hellscape if this is the best person on mainstream media or TV who is going against Syria. I mean, that, like, we really have entered into a fucked up dimension. Yeah, I mean, it did, re- it did kind of remind me of Keith Olbermann when I watched it, just because that's, that's how Keith Olbermann used to be during these rants where he would go really, really hard on Bush and, you know, the anthrax attacks and a lot of stuff that he would imply. Um, but I mean, I, I have not seen anyone else talk about that other than Tucker Carlson on corporate mainstream media TV. That's true. Yeah. And, and I mean, using terms like false flag or even he, I mean, he even had on Jamie Kerchick to debate it. I don't know if you saw that. Um, Ugh, and that no, was I missed interesting. That one. <laughs> <laughs> because he called it, he basically called it a false flag and a hoax. And, and Jamie Kircher's like, well, do you think the moon landing's a hoax? Um, oh, something like snap. that. But then at the end of the interview, I was like expecting it to be a little more adversarial because he was really hard on Max Boot. But at the end of the interview, he, he told Jamie Kirchick, he's like, no, I, I actually really like you. So I'm glad this like went well. So, I, you know, this is the neocon slayer saying he really likes Jamie Kirchick. I mean, I, I don't get it why we should celebrate this man, but... Anyways, I think I think people are very desperate and we're in just a, such a bizarre state that we just latch on to anyone who's, you know, give, throwing any sort of bone whatsoever, especially from those types of media outlets. Fox News. I mean, come on. Even even Trump himself latching on to these, you know, small tidbits of anti-intervention rhetoric, he said, you know, um, yeah, it's it reminds me of that. I really I agree with you. I think that it is out of desperation. Um, I don't know if there's anything much to say about Michael Cohen that hasn't been belabored enough. I It is really crazy that Trump's lawyer was raided. Um, I do think that the Stormy Daniels thing is insane and it could possibly be Trump's undoing. So if that's his undoing, great. Um, I, I, I don't think it's going to be Russia. I think it's going to be something like this, like these, these payments, the hush money, um, the money laundering. Absolutely. And, and now I guess the whole thing is 
Um, is Michael Cohen going to flip against him? Well, I don't see how that would happen if he's just going to get a pardon from the president. So I don't know. I mean, do you have any thoughts on the whole Michael Cohen raid and the Stormy Daniels stuff? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it it is. I mean, in a way, it's like it seems unfair, you know. And and let's just let me just say this for the record. I think Robert Mueller is an extremely shady and corrupt motherfucker with his hand in so many bizarre cover-ups that I, you know, it's hard to even pick one to really go into, but I've already gone into it extensively on this podcast and in an article that he was instrumental in, in covering up and stifling the 2001 anthrax investigation. But yet, you know, in terms of the fairness of this, this whole idea that this is a witch hunt, I mean, maybe in some ways it, it was um, because, you know, I don't think there's anything legitimate to the Russia-Trump collusion stuff in, a, in any real way, important way. But once this investigation got started, we knew, and even Bannon knew, you know, he said money laundering. He's like, this is, this is you know, Mike, it's going to go into everything. That, that this wasn't just going to stay with Russia. That, and, and we knew that Trump was a shady, shady motherfucker. I mean, just the fact that he, like, would call tabloids and pretending <laughs> to be his own agent with an alias and say and talk about himself in the third person and there's recordings of this and he like try he did that for years and years i mean we're talking about a guy who who thinks he can get away with some really bizarre crazy shit that's almost like something like a mobster you know or, or like a power tripping like psychotic person would think they can get away with so of course he's done illegal shit somewhere along the line and I, you know, and I think it's very likely that they were going to find something. And it seems like with Michael Cohen, it could be that they found, you know, that this Stormy Daniels thing might have led them in that direction of finding that he actually did break the law. And it could be a slam dunk case. But it seems like the prevailing theory is that they're trying to flip Michael Cohen by threatening him with litigation or not litigation, but like indictment. And that they're trying to flip him against Trump to actually admit that Trump violated the campaign finance laws and committed a felony by. It's, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, it's just, I guess, just admitting it on record. I mean, isn't it just completely obvious that this is what happened? Well, of course it is. And I mean, but it's so like legalese style, like, um, you know, yeah. I don't know what strategy they actually thought they could use by deflecting it that way or, or giving it to Cohen instead of Trump. Well, because um, Cohen says that he paid Daniels without Trump's knowledge. So he's just covering for Trump till the end of times, unless it means putting his ass in jail, which I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Trump, you know, is Michael Cohen willing to sit on in jail for Trump? Right. I mean, how long would he have to go to jail for? You never know. You know, some of this loyalty runs really deep and maybe um, maybe he would be willing to. I mean, we you know, Scooter Libby was willing to sit in jail and even... Bush didn't even pardon him. He just commuted his sentence. And I, you know, I feel like Scooter Libby could talk if he wanted to, like, uh, you know. Really briefly remind people who Scooter Libby is. Scooter Libby was Dick Cheney's chief of staff, and he was arrested and thrown in jail for apparently being the source to Judith Miller, basically in her article outing Valerie Plame as a CIA agent um, (laughs) for basically because Valerie Plame's husband defied Bush and came out and told the truth about the um, yellow cake in Niger not really existing. And um, the allegation was that Scooter Libby, as a sort of revenge from the Bush administration, outed Joe Wilson's wife um, to punish him for telling the truth about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. 
Scooter Libby was charged. He was about to go to jail, and George W. Bush commuted his sentence, made it so he didn't actually have to serve any time in prison. But Dick Cheney at the time was actually angry at George W. Bush for not pardoning him. Um, And this is on record. Dick Cheney has said so that he was very disappointed that Bush didn't pardon him, and he um, was not happy about that. But there's a very interesting, weird backstory with Scooter Libby, and it kind of connects, and this and, and this is kind of a tangent that I'm going to go into really quickly, is Scooter Libby follows a pattern of people associated with Trump who have bizarre connections to the 2001 anthrax attacks and a certain neocon sect of the George W. Bush administration. So in the official statement, the White House uh, said... Before his conviction, Mr. Libby had rendered more than a decade of honorable service to the nation as a public servant at the Department of State and the White House. His record since, his conviction is similarly unblemished, and he continues to be held in high regard by his colleagues and peers. In light of these facts, the president believes Mr. Libby is fully worthy of his pardon. I don't know, Mr. Libby, said President Trump, but for years I have heard that he has been treated unfairly. Hopefully this full pardon will help rectify a very sad portion of his life. Scooter Libby was a PNAC member. He was a signatory signatory co-signer of Rebuilding America's Defenses, the infamous document they released. Um, In jail, he sent a bizarre coded... Let's see, what did it actually say? I don't know Scooter Libby just like I don't know Mr. Magoo. (laughs) I have no idea who Mr. Magoo is. Did Did you hear him say that? What? Yeah, he wrote that on Twitter. He was like, people have said that I've compared Jeff Sessions to Mr. Magoo. He's like, I don't know who that is. What the fuck are you kidding me? <laughs> it was like one of his most outrageous Wait, recently? Yet. Yes. Wait, so he like did like a weird passive aggressive swipe at Jeff Sessions? The <laughs> fucking shit is He said, I've never heard of those on. people. He said, he said, Washington Post said, I refer to Jeff Sessions as Mr. Magoo and Rod Rosenstein as Mr. Peepers. He was like, there are no such people and I don't know these characters. <laughs> wow, that's so bizarre. Damn. Sorry, go on though. <laughs> Well, so, okay, this is a secret co- uh, secret weird coded message that Scooter Libby sent to Judith Miller while he was in jail. Oh, I'm sorry. Reverse scenario. Judith Miller, before Scooter Libby was actually charged, was sitting in jail protecting her source, which was Scooter Libby. She pleaded the fifth, I think. Um, and she was in jail. Scooter Libby sent her a letter in jail where he says, you went to jail in the summer. It is fall now. You will have stories to cover. Iraqi elections and suicide bombers, biological threats in the Iranian nuclear program. Out west, where you vacation, the Aspens will already be turning. They turn in clusters because their roots connect them. Come back to work, to life. That's just fucking bizarre shit. I mean, that's just kind of as some of the biz- more bizarre things I've seen come out of Washington, D.C. that almost seems like it belongs in the House of Cards episode or something. I mean, right? I mean, that's creepy. Yeah. Totally. (laughs) Um, And then another interesting thing about Scooter Libby is that his connection to anthrax is not just his relationship with Judith Miller, who actually also has very bizarre connections to anthrax, but his connection to being obsessed with the Operation Dark Winter drill and the exclusive video recordings of this entire drill that the U.S. government has access to. In In a book written by Philip Saracen, he describes how Scooter Libby personally got Dick Cheney to sit down and watch the Operation Dark Winter Drill on video in the Oval Office immediately following 9-11 to take the threat of bioterrorism seriously. 
and that I, I just find that very fascinating because uh, apparently Scooter was sort of what got the ball rolling on the rest of the administration thinking that anthrax was going to be the second attack after 9-11. Um, and, and here's Trump, but once again, oddly, um, picking someone or just like pardoning someone, you know, just out of the blue, another yeah. PNAC neocon that also happens to have specifically, you know, bizarre connections to the anthrax attacks. Um, and, and the propagandist behind it. I just find that odd. I mean... Foiled again by the deep state, Rob. Yeah. It, it's very, very odd. Uh, sorry to segue off of that, but back to the Michael Cohen thing and Stormy Daniels. Um, the, the interview that she did with Anderson Cooper was hilarious because you could tell, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, they had this big affair. No, she just banged him because she wanted a job on The Apprentice yeah, and she was like totally disgusted by him. Like Anderson Cooper is just like the most hilarious line of questioning. He's just like, were you attracted to him? And she was like, no, of course not. He was like, did you want to have sex with him? She was like, no. He was like, did he use a condom? She was like, no. <laughs> and then, but the, the best part of the interview though is when she says that, and this shows you very, you know, how sociopathic he is back to your point about the mafia ties and how he's done illegal shit. I mean, damn, we know of one potential poisoning of Megyn Kelly at the, the eve of the debate that she's recanted now, but we think that, you know, there, there's definitely something to that. And then the Stormy Daniels thing where years ago he had someone go and threaten her and her child in a parking lot. So this is what this man is capable of. And that's just what we know of. Yeah. And to, and for all these people saying it's, it's fake, she's making this up. It's like, why would she make that up? Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, it's, it's like we actually, Trump has a history of threat, having people threaten people. Yeah. This is his MO. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, it, he could be in really deep shit. And it would be amazing if a sex worker was the one to, like, ruin Donald Trump. I mean, it would, be, it, it would be really good. And, um, it, you know, it, it's, it bothers me that a lot of people are saying it's a distraction from all these other important issues and that we should be talking about other things. I mean, maybe they have a point, but it bothers me because... It's like that almost sounds like you would have sounded back when Clinton was lying about Monica Lewinsky and was dodging all those questions and lied under oath. I mean, he still lied under oath. You know, he right. still got himself in that situation. So it might have been a witch hunt in some ways, but what's fair is fair. If you want to just talk about like comparing it to like other people been in the same position, like, yeah, that didn't start originally with, um, you know, with, with Monica Lewinsky. But it ended with it, and he lied under oath, and that's all that happened. So it's like, if Trump did something illegal and had his lawyer pay off a porn star, and it has nothing to do with Russia collusion, but they still find that he committed that act, and I mean, you know, that's all that's all yeah. you need right there. Right. He, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to pay off this porn star and try to silence her. He could have just bit the bullet and been like, you know what, I had an affair. Um, let's just let me just ride this out. You know, Bar Barack Obama admitting to almost shooting heroin in his book. So maybe I can survive this. Instead, he fucking freaked out and had his fucking lawyer pay her off and try to silence her and then subsequently threaten her. I mean, he's an idiot. It's like the cover up right. is worse than the crime often in these times, you know, in just a general larger sense. I mean. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. And unfortunately, the deep state has made uh, Trump sell a multitude of weapons to Saudi Arabia. The deep state has also made him remove the last remaining iota of red tape to open arms sales for foreign governments. Um, the wedding party in Yemen that was just bombed 
by the U.S.-Saudi coalition, and I am saying U.S.-Saudi coalition because the U.S. is not only selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, but also the, all of the military intelligence to bomb. And also, we're bombing Yemen. So it's not just Saudi Arabia. We've been bombing Yemen for years. Um, just last night, this coalition bombed a wedding party and killed the bride, killed at least 20 people. That number is probably going to go up. It was a double tap strike as these usually are, which means you strike first. And then as aid workers come to try to attend to the victims, you kill them. Um, Very deliberate. This is on top of multiple hospitals, um, schools, and of course, many funerals that have been bombed as well by the Saudi coalition. Um, Very sadistic, deliberate. 45 others are, are seriously wounded, including the groom. They're in the hospital. Where's the red line here? Where's the red line for this? Is it it's just the chemical weapons that are just too atrocious? It's not, you know, bombing wedding parties on purpose. Um, and, and then you have Morgan Freeman, the voice of God and the voice of Hillary Clinton's soul, and The Rock, who I literally almost thought would run for president because he is that type of guy, and Rupert Murdoch just hosting a good old, good old dinner, good old fucking fun time with the Saudi king. Just a few weeks ago in LA, um, they had a good old grand old time and The Rock was saying, I'm going to bring the next bottle of tequila to your royal family, not even realizing that in Saudi Arabia, alcohol is banned because of course the king was just drinking back tequila with these people. I just can't comprehend the fact that these like actors and actresses are just comfortable. Like they know about the, the genocide going on in Yemen. Yeah. Well, it's because, I mean, let's face it. I mean- when you when you get invited to a trip to Israel, you know there's a more of a you know even now it's like there's more of a risk there um, in terms of like how you're going to be seen and there's not that extra perk of like the people taking you on these this tour in Israel handing you like ten thousand dollar watches and like gold pieces as like little presents throughout your visit with them you know I mean this yeah. is what kind of like the way that Saudi Saudi Arabian like royalty acts like they literally just like lavishly shower you with gifts even this um. I think Russell Peters, British comedian, really popular in Europe, stand-up comedian, does a bit, and he acts like it's just like the funniest thing in the world that this like Saudi Arabian guy like gave him like all this free shit that like amounted to like fifty thousand dollars in the course of them (laughs) hanging out with each other, and I was just thinking like that's just fucking crazy and weird and really just odd, you know? Like you almost should not talk about that. It just seems like a little bit dirty to talk about. It's disgusting. You should be embarrassed. And for The Rock to be tweeting, oh, I had such a great time seeing Saudi Arabia. Like, good God, dude. You should be mortified that you spent time with this maniac and this killer, this monster. Um, And just a couple days ago, President Trump loosened U.S. policy and arms sales. So we talked about this before. The U.S. is obviously the leading arms dealer in the world. All of this hysteria about the NRA, which I agree with. The NRA is a disgusting organization that's fomenting a civil war and um, all this rhetoric against the left, people of color. That aside, why would the Democrats even attempt to try to care about the NRA when they just openly support like militarism, empire, imperialism, selling of all these guns, we support 70% of the world's dictatorships with either guns or direct training. Um, and Trump just loosened just that last iota of bureaucratic red tape. Um, apparently it was taking too long to get these guns to people. So he really wants to hawk a bunch more killer drones. Now he's just bypassing Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. I mean, the stocks for Lockheed and Raytheon and Boeing were already shot 
through the roof after the bombing of Syria. But now they're just, I mean, they're just peaking like never before because Trump is just now removing them from the equation. He's just like, I am the arms dealer in chief. I'm going to personally call all these heads of states and just sell them guns and sell them killer drones and surveillance drones. So I don't know if he's getting a kickback. I don't know if his sons are getting like a, a future job here. It's it's to the point of just ridiculousness now. Um, he's not even trying to do diplomacy whatsoever. I don't know if he ever did, but he says in, in some cases, years before orders would take place because of this bureaucracy, the Department of Defense, State Department, he's like, we're short circuiting that. It's now going to be a matter of days because apparently before you had to like, you know, it's all obviously on paper. It's like, oh, if you're selling it to a country that is committing open atrocities or human rights abuses, there's like more time that it takes to get guns to them. Apparently not anymore. So um, it's just, it, this is what we're dealing with now. I, it is so funny that this idea that Trump is, you know, in opposition to the deep state, that the neocons all hate him. I mean, on some level, it's like you have to wake up to the fact that a lot of this is just like rhetorical you know, it's rhetorically a game. You know, they may hate the way Trump has all this bluster and, you know, his sloppy way of making the U.S. look bad. But ultimately, all these think tanks and stuff are funded by defense contractor money and, and weapons company money. So it's like that's who pay that's their bread and butter. That's who pays them. So like Trump is short circuiting a lot of the in some ways, like the whole D.C. system, if he's really boosting the military to the largest levels it's ever seen, the largest amount of budget it's ever seen, then it's like ultimately like that's what that's what they wanted. So all this, you know, all this stuff was almost like for nothing, all this like whining and complaining because it's like they got what they ultimately need and wanted. Exactly. Because exactly. It's always been historically the case. It's like you can't have, you can't prepare for World War III to this degree without actually like pushing us into some kind of war just based on how many weapons we have. It's like, it just doesn't work that way. We can't just be ready for like the next confrontation, the next time we get attacked. I mean, it's going to cause us to be on a more aggressive footing. This is how this always works. I mean, it's a very simple equation. Um, it's a very simple equation. That's capitalism. These corporations that control everything in the world have a profit line that they need to beat every year. Otherwise, they are failing as a business. And if anyone on the corporate boards of directors says, you know, um, dissents about what's going on in order to make more money, don't drain this last aquifer in Flint. Don't, you know, let's not kill all these people to do this. Let's let's take some personal responsibility. They are pushed out of the board. That's the way it works. That's capitalism. That's why it's like we're eating ourselves. I mean, they're they're their own grave diggers because ultimately the pitchforks are going to come for the plutocrats because the world is, you know, on its last leg because that's the system. The system just eats itself and um, it is a machine and all of these defense contractors need to keep breaking their profits every year. Otherwise, they're going to be at a loss and that can't happen. So how can they keep breaking their profits? Well, we just need more bombing campaigns. We need to... Uh, aggressively be on a war footing with China, Russia. It's very obvious, you know? I mean, that that's the system. Um, so Trump is just the best reflection of that. And people who have not realized that, that that's what's happening, I feel bad for because they really are deluding their, themselves and, it, and it's unfortunate. Um, yeah, and, it's, and, it, and a lot of it is at its heart and, and core, it's nationalism. You know, a lot of people try would try to say for years that the neocons were secretly just 
you know, plants or shills for Israel. But I, I would actually disagree and say that at the heart of even the neocons, they have sort of that alt-right strain of virulent nationalism that drives them um, to the point where it's what Michael Ledeen said in that quote that I use in a very heavy agenda part three. We, you know, we love being able to like go to war and win. We love winning and it's built into our DNA we can know we can't we can't get out of it any easier than we can get out of our sports, our food, and our clothes. That's how like American this notion of like wanting to go to war and being the toughest kid on the block is. And it's been like that since we were born. I mean, it's not it's not anything new. I mean, the 1950s, you know, like when our mom was growing up. I mean, it's so that's what it is. I mean, it's um. Yeah. You know. No. Yeah. It is. It's jingoism. It's because we do it. Yeah. And that's it. That's Trump the takes line the intellectual sheen off of it. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and that's, that's maybe why, that's what's that's dangerous to them him. about it. That's why they hate him. Of course, that's why they hate him. He removes the mask. They want a smooth operator like a Hillary, like an Obama. Mm-hmm. Look at what happened with Bush. At the end of the Bush administration, it was the same kind of thing where the system was almost like it seemed like where could they go from here because people were so upset. There were so many people in the streets. And the world was just hating, you know, us so much that they they put Obama and everything went fine again. And I think that's what we're going to see if the Democrats are smart. I don't think they are because I think they're going to sabotage a Bernie Sanders type yeah, absolutely. run again. And they're going to try to put forward someone like Kamala Harris or something. And Trump's just going to win again because they're so fucking stupid. And now this DNC lawsuit, which we can get into later. But first, I wanted to get into the Syria chemical weapons attack. Um, you know, this is coming on the heels of the, the Israeli massacre ongoing of the great March of return, sniping hundreds of people, killing dozens of people, unarmed protesters through sniper rifle lenses, people marked press, children sniping them in the head, laughing about it on video. You have colonial settlers cheering them on. It is a sick state of affairs. And on top of just the silence, the abysmal silence and complicity from the world actors on this, you have just everyone obsessed with a chemical weapons attack in Syria. Look, I'm not going to say definitively what happened. We don't know. Um, inspectors are on the ground. They're they're figuring it out. <clears throat> the Syria government says um, that they're, we're going to find out. We're going to completely find out as soon as the investigation is over. But before we, I mean, this is just coming on the heels also of the Skripal poisoning, which you just did a huge podcast about. And before I get into the nuances of, of what the stories and the counter narratives are about the Syria chemical weapons thing, why don't you give people just a quick breakdown of the Skripal event and how it fits into this, Robbie? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to look back at this event, which, which happened about a month before this alleged chemical weapons attack in Syria. Um, now, if you don't know what happened, yeah, go back and listen to my podcast with Tom Secker of Clandestine, where we spent about an hour and a half breaking down the entire incident. What the actual incident was, we still don't know for sure. The UK government and Theresa May are alleging that it was a Russian chemical weapons attack on a former Russian spy that was designed to assassinate him. Um, the chemical is supposed to be five to eight times more potent than sarin gas, they say, and the Russian government 
specifically the Foreign Office, Foreign um, Information Office, I think it's called, released a statement saying that the chemical was Novichok and it came from the Russian government. And that started a chain reaction of events where Theresa May and others in Europe were trying to build an international coalition to excoriate Vladimir Putin and to say no more, you have crossed the line. You know, um, now you're actually using chemical weapons in Europe you know, in the, on the UK foreign soil to attack people. But what was interesting was this, you know, sort of floated around in media and the US media too for a little bit. Um, but Trump never actually echoed it. Uh, a lot of different European leaders, however, did reinforce what Theresa May said about this attack, this alleged attack. Um, and Trump didn't say anything, but right before Trump decided to bomb Syria um, as a result of this alleged chemical weapons attack that happened in Syria a month later. It was part of an international coalition of UK, France, and, and the US. And Theresa May, in her speech, laid the groundwork for what uh, later became the you know the the coalition to do this. And she was basically she explicitly links um, the Salisbury chemical attack with the Syria chemical attack. In, in her speech. Um, and I guess the question I have to ask is, would the U.S., France, and the U.K. be bombing Syria right now if it wasn't for the international outrage and the propaganda originally generated by the Salisbury attack? And I don't, honestly don't think there would be this response to that you know, alleged chemical weapons attack in Syria if that hadn't happened previous, if this event in Salisbury hadn't happened previously to it. Um, and... You know, there's all this other weird stuff about the Russian government claims the chemical was actually BZ, which is produced by the U.S. government, which is like an, obscure, psychedelic. an obscure weaponized hallucinogen. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go into that in too much detail. But what do you think, Abby, about just this idea that all of a sudden when this, you know, this smaller, lower scale alleged chemical weapons attack happens in Syria that we bomb. But there's been a bunch of other chemical weapons attacks since then that we haven't bombed. Do you think it's because of this Salisbury attack happened before, like it's like an unprecedented event that they were trying to like up yes. the stakes with. Just like the anthrax attacks. I think that once this happened, it, it fomented a whole different thing where, you know, Theresa May, like you said, is just appealing to the world saying we were attacked by Russia with chemical weapons. I mean, that really sowed the seeds yeah. and the timing is just so curious to me that every time there's a chemical weapons attack, it's always just the most convenient timing in the world. Where, you know, Assad makes grounds and then all of a sudden there's a chemical weapons attack and then all of a sudden we need to do something about it. And, and of course, when you already had that hysteria brewing and Jeremy Corbyn being smeared daily by the corporate media as being a Russian plant and a Russian stooge, well, Theresa May is desperate, isn't she? So it's just every part about it is bizarre. Um, what is going on with the victims? I mean, they're out of the hospital. What interviews have they done? Well, the really weird thing is, so Russia hasn't done this in a while. And I say Russia did it because they probably did. And it also, to me, shows that they probably weren't behind the attack itself if they were willing to do something so brazen afterwards. Brazen meaning just like the Victoria Newland phone call, fuck the EU. Allegedly, Russian intelligence recorded a phone call, private phone call between Sergei Skripal's daughter, Yulia, in the hospital and her cousin. And in this phone call, they have an entire transcript of it that they published and the recording of it. She's saying she wants to go back to Russia 
and stay there. And she doesn't seem afraid going back to Russia at all. She doesn't express any fear that she might be assassinated. She doesn't express anything that you would expect out of someone who was just apparently uh, had an assassination attempt done on them by the Russian government. It's a very odd conversation. Um, so obviously Russia released this trying to show that this is not exactly what's that, you know, we're being led to believe is happening here that this is, she does, you know, that obviously on some level, they don't think they were, uh, that the Russian government tried to assassinate them. That's what it seems. So, well, it's weird that they also didn't go to the house for a week and then they go like a week later. It's like, why did you not go to the home? And then the cat is all emaciated and then they just burn it. Well, it's, I mean, yeah, they, uh, that's a really interesting component of it that Todd Secker brings up is in all these other instances we've seen, I mean, even with the anthrax attacks, you can see the amount of decontamination that they seriously did there. I mean, there was real anthrax. We, we can bet on the fact, you know, I don't have to see it for myself. I haven't seen it. I haven't talked to anyone who directly encountered the anthrax that was deployed then through the U.S. postal system. But there's enough evidence that we've seen photographs, video of them doing serious decontamination procedures that sort of show that, yeah, they were all worried there was really anthrax there, right? I mean, all the people on the ground were, like, you know, watching those videos of the, the investigators. In this case, it doesn't seem like that's what happened. There's, there's video footage and photographs of people in hazmat suits um, walking around near just like cops, but completely like in regular plain clothes, like touching the doorknob of the house where they claim the Novacek was placed and all this shit, like not even wearing gloves. So it seems like they weren't even really sure that there was a chemical used. And they're just like, they kind of like threw that out there. Um, and that's part of what some, seems so interesting about it is if it really was something they needed to decontaminate and they had already identified it, they would have like done a serious decontamination procedure and gone inside the house, like you were saying, and decontaminated it or at least like sealed it or something. Like, it's just weird that they wouldn't even bother to look there and be like, wait, maybe they got it at the house. Maybe they were infected with something at the house. Like, that just seems like a like a um, um, obvious thing any investigator would look at. So that shows that something very odd is happening here. And then we have the Siri chemical weapons attack. Um, <clears throat> but just really I quick, think, I just want to say, yeah. I really liked what you said about how the, it reminds you of how the anthrax attacks follow yeah. 9-11. It's like a double whammy Yeah, that is sort of like having them both together push it over the edge. And I, I think you're right making that analogy. Yeah. I mean, when I first heard about the chemical weapons attack, first I was still reeling and I still am reeling as everyone should be from the fact that Israel has this ongoing massacre of literally unarmed protesters and people marked press and children. So this is happening on a daily basis. There's zero outcry from the world. The U.S., of course, is blocking all these resolutions for investigations. Unbelievable, right? So, you know, of course, the hypocrisy is just peak absurdity where the world is suddenly obsessed with um, a social media video put out showing a chemical weapons attack. I feel like in the past, when this has happened, there's been more hesitancy. I don't know. I mean, I know that all this should happen with Obama and the investigators went, and it was also very odd timing where on the eve of the, you know, basically the chemical weapons and investigators on the ground in Damascus, Assad just decides to use chemical weapons. Um, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson has debunked this as well as many other military in officials who have said there's absolutely no reason that Assad would have done that. It doesn't make sense. And in fact, the rebels um, had more of an incentive to use them. The rebels have been found using chemical weapons in the past several times. Um, so that 
aside, it, the, the timing of these is always very strange. So when I first heard, oh, there's a chemical weapons attack in Syria, I was just like, wow, that's amazing. Because I just heard that the Syrian government was making advances on um, basically from East Ghouta to Idlib. It was already making this evacuation plan to transport the armed fighters out of there. It had taken over and, and taken back almost all of the territory um, from the the rebel group that was on the ground that was controlling these areas. I mean, it did not need chemical weapons. This is the most obvious thing, right? And this is what military commanders will say, and this is what people are saying who have inside knowledge of the military, um, who are going out on outlets and saying these things and getting shut down, or you know, on alternative media, they're saying this. That's obvious. The Syrian government did not need chemical weapons. It was highly successful in the military operations taking over and taking back the ground that was taken by the rebels. For just a week prior to this, Trump had already declared to the surprise of many people in his cabinet that he wanted to pull out militarily from Syria. Can and I of interject something really quick there? Yeah. So I think that's important. You said to the surprise of many in his cabinet because there was a lot of you know people from the alt-right, these supposed anti-interventionists on the alt-right were acting like the deep state was trying to thwart Trump because he announced the pullout from Syria. That's their narrative they're trying to push. Um, the deep state you know, staging the chemical weapons attack or whatever. But yet this idea that he, you know, all he did was it's, it's actually, if you watch the clip, it almost just seems like he's like, it's just throwing it out there. Yeah, it's just random. That's it the thing. Honestly, he just throws shit out there. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he had a serious policy. No. Um, consider, I mean, maybe he like floated the idea internally, but like, yeah, like it seems like he just, he doesn't really care about the shit. He was just kind of throwing out there to see the reaction to it. Because he knows yeah. that there are people who might like him to say something like that. Um, you know, I don't know. It, it he really talks, does seem he random. He talks Sorry. out of both sides of his mouth. Nothing he says should be taken with any sort of, like, it should be taken with the smallest grain of salt that exists in the planet. I don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. We have no idea. All I know is that there's several counter narratives that have poked several holes in the theory of the establishment press. Obviously, you know that, and I'll get into that in a second, but of course, all the capitalist media is just replaying over and over again these horrific videos of the children and civilians in, in this intense suffering. They're saying chemical weapons is the red line. And of course, this was ordered by Assad, Overwhelming evidence points to the fact that Assad has done this, um, point blank. Um, democracy now has been, for the last two weeks, having on pro-interventionist after pro-interventionist. Mazambeg, the former Guantanamo prisoner, has called for a no-fly zone. And I'll get into what that means in a second. I mean, very flippantly, right, with, with basically virtually no challenge from these hosts that are interviewing these people. So this is the premier progressive network that is supposed to be challenging war narratives, and they are really just running full speed ahead with the establishment narrative on, on this entire incident. Um, so, you know, whenever we see intense propaganda campaigns like this, we have to just really take a step back and understand that this is all concerted effort and it, it usually follows the same formula. So a couple quick things, um, you know, just like the liberation of Aleppo, uh, it's not mentioned at all that the U.S. has been funding rebel groups on the ground with tens of millions of dollars for years and years, arming them. Um, they have obviously ties to al-Qaeda, al-Nusra. All the unworthy victims to the Western press are the hundreds and hundreds of Syrians, if not thousands, that were held captive 
in Duma. They, they were literally held captive. So these are unworthy victims. These are people who are never mentioned. Of course, the rebels are never mentioned. Every time you hear the numbers, Assad has killed 500,000 people. It's never talked about that it's a civil war. It's never talked about that half of those casualties are actually Syrian soldiers. Um, Syrian soldiers are paid like $50 a week to do their job. And then you look at someone from the white helmets or I don't know what these rebels are paid or how the money's filtered down. But uh, this woman, Carla Ortiz, went and interviewed a bunch of former white helmets and they said that they were paid like $1,000. So a lot of these people get into this organization as volunteers. They want to help people and, and the white helmets do save people on the ground. Unfortunately, they are essentially an extension of the U.S. government. You know, it's unfortunate that everyone ran with this narrative and said there's overwhelming evidence that Assad gasses own people because we actually knew nothing. You know, we need to sort through the facts first. So I was really concerned with just everyone jumping out of the gates and saying what happened, what didn't happen. But as the facts have filtered out over the last two weeks, it's it's been quite interesting because there, there's quite a few people who have gone to the site and actually interviewed the doctors, the medical staff, um, witnesses, victims, who actually said there was no chemical attack whatsoever. So now it's getting to the point where, you know, it's no longer, could it have been the rebels or was it Assad? Now there's another narrative coming out that says it might not have happened at all. And um, here's the thing. If there was an attack, if there wasn't an attack, if it was Assad or not, it still should not change anyone's opinion whatsoever about military intervention. So let's just get that out of the way. And, you know, you see these people on the ground, basically CNN reporters walking around sniffing backpacks, like literally sniffing a child's backpack and saying, oh, something happened here. This stinks. Like in a (laughs) bombed out city. Britain's special forces, the former head of Britain's, Britain's special forces has come out and said, it's absurd. He said, no one believes this, that Assad gassed his own people. He said he already won the war. Um, he said this this opinion is shared by senior commanders in the U.S. military. Then you have Rand Paul also saying that he said Assad did not carry out the attack or he's the dumbest dictator on the planet. Um, Ten guys with machine guns are more lethal than this attack was. Well, I think that's so, a really, I mean, that, yeah. as much as I think Rand Paul, is a, Rand Paul is a jackass, especially for what he did today, and we'll mention that a little later. Um, but, I mean, what he just said is a point that I've made and we've talked about on Media Roots many times before that it's not even like, it's just, it's not that I don't believe that he's capable of using chemical weapons. Like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe he is. Yeah. But why, if he wanted to just kill a bunch of civilians or kill a bunch of people in an area and punish them or whatever, why would he do that? Why would he use that and not just like line people up and shoot them or bomb them? I mean, it just, it's very, it just, that part doesn't make sense to me. Why chemical weapons the only thing that will generate international outrage and cause the international community to say, okay, now we need to do regime change. Like why do that over and over again? Well, it doesn't make any sense at all. And that's the main point that I think people who are clear thinking say. So let's really quickly, because, you know, you have Shane Bauer out there who was the guy who was commit, who was charged with espionage in Iran for hiking on the mountains and who's now running Mother Jones and, and running with all these crazy alt-right, alt-left narratives. You have Ken Roth, the head of Human Rights Watch. Basically, everyone is out there in the mainstream calling any alteration to the mainstream chemical weapons narrative a Russian shill, a propagandist, and a liar. Again, I'm open. I'm open to anything. I'm open to evidence that is counter to my preconceived notions, 100%. I always 
will be. I mean, I, that, that's the way that everyone should be. I'm, I'm completely open. Send me facts and I will look at them. Unfortunately, what I have seen since this alleged attack happened is zero facts on behalf of the intelligence officials and establishment officials that are saying what happened. And instead, I'm just seeing all these things eke out that actually flies in the face of those facts and, and provides an alternate narrative, which is that, you know, the attack didn't happen. Um, which is just insane to me. It's just, it's just mind boggling to me that the uniformity of the U S press, I mean, the complete obedience that all these people have access to the same people that Russian journalists do. Um, all these Russian journalists who go to the site and talk to the doctors and talk to the victims and the nurses and all the people who are there. And it's not just Russian reporters. That's just what Shane Bauer and Ken Roth want to claim that everyone who's not running with this narrative is like a Russian stooge. Look no further than Robert Frisk. So when Robert Fisk's article came out that contradicted the official narrative in The Independent, um, I knew immediately that it was going to be, A, latched onto by people, like, you know, from all sides of the spectrum who, like, want to, you know, want to broadcast this, like, you know, false flag in Syria thing. Um, I knew that was going to happen. But then I also knew that people were probably going to try to smear this guy. Like, I could tell immediately that they were going to try to, like, not just debunk the content of the article, but, like, smear him and lie about him and, you know, like, claim that he just, like, made it up or was getting handled by Syrian government government officials. And all that shit started to happen immediately. But then, of course, um, the Alliance for Securing Democracy was also on their Hamilton 68 dashboard claiming that it was that was the most boosted article by their Russian bot accounts that day was the Robert Frisk article. So not only was it, you know, a, a story that was um, manipulated by the Syrian government, um, it was also uh, being boosted by Russian bots. So it's like, don't even look at the article. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's not, it doesn't even become about the content of the article. It's just, well, he must have been, you know, lied to by the, the witnesses he talked to were like people that were plants by Assad's government. I mean, it's just, it's just all crazy the way that people are trying to go after him. Well, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's just like what people will say if you if you talk to people on the ground in North Korea, people on the ground in Venezuela, people on the ground in Iran, and people on the ground in Syria. They're all paid actors. They're all held at gunpoint to say these things if it runs against what the mainstream says. I mean, it's always the same story. Really? Is that really the case that these people are all literally plants and paid actors? Or is it more probable that the intelligence officials that are planting the original story are probably lying or manufacturing aspects of it. I mean, what's more believable to you? It's like, I, I mean, good God, Robert Frisk goes to Syria. He's on the ground. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from his article because I think it's really important. He was alone. He had no handlers. He wasn't followed around by soldiers. They weren't directing him of, of who to talk to or not. He says, quote, war stories, however, have a habit of growing darker. For the same 58-year-old Syrian doctor then adds something profoundly uncomfortable. He's talking about the Syrian doctor once he found the hospital that the alleged attack took place at. He says, the patients, he says, were overcome not by gas, but by oxygen starvation and the rubbish-filled tunnels and basements in which they lived on a night of wind and heavy shelling that stirred up the dust storm. Dr. Asim Rahabini announces this extraordinary conclusion. It is worth observing that he, by his own admission, is not an eyewitness himself, he refers twice to the jihadi gunmen of the Army of Islam in Duma as terrorists, the regime's word for their enemies, and a term used by many people across Syria. Am I hearing this right? Which version of events are we supposed to believe? 
I walked across this town quite freely yesterday without soldier, without policeman, or minder to haunt my footsteps, just two Syrian friends, a camera, and a notebook. And he was clamoring around these like giant ruins to to just speak to people. And he and he was musing. He was like, maybe because people like live in far distances from each other. He's like, they maybe didn't hear about the chemical attack. He was like, the, the strangest part to him was that this, the doctor just said, you know, that, that this didn't happen. And um, so it's less weird that maybe people like in these desolate, more remote areas that he was kind of, you know, walking like miles around and talking to didn't know about it. But it is very strange that the people at the actual hospital said this didn't happen. And then you have Russian journalists going and, and they actually track down that child who was splashed with water, that video that you see over and over again, the kids just being doused with water and screaming. And the kid in the video literally is fine. And he says, you know, what happened was that um, people outside the hospital were shouting, um, gas, gas. And they said, run in the hospital. And then they just started pouring water on all these people. And, and people from the White Helmets filmed the incident. And then they left. I mean, is this kid an actor? He seems an extremely good actor, if he is. Um, well, I mean, is he being even held even if at he gunpoint? It, it wouldn't matter because, like, he's being used in those videos that were, like, the mainstream media was trotting around showing them, like, coming to the hospital after the chemical yeah. weapons attack. Yeah. Unfortunately, all these other pro-interventionist people will not accept any evidence or information that does not fit the pro-intervention narrative. They all say it's fake news, it's Russian propaganda. They're open to zero evidence that would be contrary to their their beliefs. Um, this one guy does another interview where he interviews all the people at the hospital. They say the same exact thing, and he's just called a stooge, you know, by these people. They're like, look at this fucking moron being used by Russia it's like, well, what do you mean? I mean, where's the corporate news journalists? Where's the Western journalists other than Robert Frisk, Fisk, I'm sorry, who has won countless journalism awards, who works for a mainstream publication? Has literally anyone else tried to go interview the people at the hospital? I mean, where are they? They were there. He says, he says that he was on a bus with all these fucking mainstream journalists. Where are their reports? Let's hear their accounts with the witnesses who were there. It is bizarre to me how all of these people can just be uniformly on board with a narrative that has not been proven to sell war. I've been a media analyst for the last 10 years, and it's still so difficult for me to understand that people don't have their own agency or will fight for their own agency or will put their jobs on the line and say, I'm not going to do this. That, that's what really pisses me off. And I saw this happen in Venezuela where, you know, you, you dare to report something contrary to what we're told and you're a stooge. I'm a stooge for the Venezuelan government. Everyone I talk to is paid. They have to say these things because they're given a clap bag of food. Um, they're going to get killed if they don't go along with it. I mean, it, I, I'm sorry, but I just don't believe that. And, you know, when Democracy Now! just has on these pro-imperial guests, one of them says limited bombing gives Assad a green light. And the other one says the no-fly zone is necessary. That's insane. I mean, a no-fly zone, according to the Pentagon, would, would need at least 70,000 U.S. personnel on the ground. It means, it means um, not only just removing the Syrian ability to, to shoot down or to, to launch missiles, it means literally bombing the entire capabilities of the Syrian state. Um, an aggressive bombing campaign to deliberately cripple any of their ability to wage defense. Um, it would literally start a major war. People on all sides will die. And it's not a very casual thing. This is what happened in Libya. And just calling it like simply a no-fly zone is a misnomer. It means a very serious action and a very serious escalation of war. And, and, and these Hillary 
um, campaign officials like Neera Tandon and all these other people who on the eve of Trump bombing Syria had the fucking audacity to say, thanks, Susan Sarandon, while quoting fucking the, the news that Trump's bombing when Hillary would have been bombing quicker is outlandish. This is where we're at, where these people are saying, thanks, Susan Sarandon, as if fucking Susan Sarandon is why Trump is bombing Syria. This is how warped the shit has become. And, and you can reply saying, wait, Hillary called for bombing every time she went on fucking record, dude. Why is this Susan Sarandon's fault? And so then you have bizarre. people who dare to question this shit. Like, you know, Jimmy Dore dares to question the chemical weapons narrative is having people on that, that were there on the ground in Syria saying, hey, this is, you know, I saw something else. And CNN has this bizarre hit piece talking about YouTube advertisers pulling their, their ad revenue from quote unquote extremist channels starts by talking about ISIS moves on to talking about pedophiles then goes to neo-Nazis and at the very end of the article haphazardly tacks on Jimmy Dore as a quote extremist far left conspiracy theorist who talks about how the Syria chemical weapons attack never happened I mean holy shit um it's and, pretty you crazy. Know, I mean, it's just outrageous, Robbie. And then, you know, you you hear from these people who are on the ground, again, the, these quote-unquote paid actors, these Russian stooges who are at gunpoint. Again, paid actors. Everyone's a paid actor. Um, instead of maybe saying, hey, this, this is weird. Why are all these people saying something that's completely contrary to what the government's telling me? Um, and then, and then again, even just bombing a country without any evidence whatsoever, like literally Mattis is out there saying, we have social media reports telling us this happened. That's, that's what we have. I mean, it's the point of such absurdity. It's almost more, it's like we're on an expedited path of war with such trigger happy assholes at the helm that you don't even have to have a fake WMD campaign months and months of the propaganda. It's just, you have a social media report, you have a video out there, bomb bomb within a day. And if you don't bomb within a day, use your garrison in the Middle East to do it for you, Israel, where, you know, we had Israel bomb for us. <sighs> and then, I mean, if you want to get into the white helmets, check out Max Blumenthal's report for Gray Zone. He's been slandered for it. I mean, he's been harassed for daring to talk about how the white helmets are not just this altruistic, life-saving aid organization. I mean, they are a group funded overtly by the U.S. State Department. You just had a Pentagon official the other day being asked, are the white helmets still getting paid? And she said, yes, absolutely. She said, the bills are still getting paid. Um, it's no mystery whatsoever. It's not a secret that they actually work on behalf and very openly are calling for Assad's removal and open regime change. I mean, you look at their website. If you just go to their website, it basically just links to things calling for no-fly zone, Um it's operated by a PR company called the Syria Campaign. Um, you're immediately directed toward all these intervention requests. Um, and, you know, here they are winning, you know, awards and, and being lauded on Netflix documentaries as this civil defense organization. How dare you accuse them of being linked to the U.S. and being an arm of U.S. regime change? Well, what the fuck are they then? Yeah, I mean, it's... <clears throat> They've really I mean, done a good job. They're literally they're founded in collaboration with the USAID. They've really done a good job of like making all this seem seem very le stuff seem very legitimate. Um, it's very sophisticated propaganda, extremely sophisticated. One of the other things that I find interesting about all of this is it was like it really wasn't um, 
that big of a bombing campaign like and it and it's and it's already you know it ended very quickly so i find that very surprising it seemed like they were really gearing up for something bigger this time right especially because there was international involvement it seemed like it was going to be libya style um it wasn't though it was no no I, i don't know how many actual planes actually went out and bombed but it seemed like it was mostly just like tomahawk missile fired from um ships and they and they didn't even destroy. They destroyed a pharmaceutical company that was producing snake venom and testing chemicals in children's toys. The um, Sana, the Syrian state news agency, reported that you know several of the missiles hit a research center in Barze, destroying a building that included scientific labs and a training center. And the guys who worked there, they were just like, I don't know why we were hit. They're like, we're a civilian pharmaceutical and chemical research agency. We did not expect that we'd be hit. He said, we produce antidotes to scorpion and snake venom while running tests on chemical products used made in food, medicine, and children's toys. He said, if it were a chemical weapons facility, we would not be able to stand here. He said, I've been here since 5.30 a.m. in full health. I'm not coughing. (laughs) I mean, it's funny because it's just insane. Yeah, so... That so it's like this idea that I feel like you know, and I even got really scared for a second. Like I, I got sucked into this um, concept that if we bomb, you know, these sites or whatever, because I didn't know what sites they were going to be, um, that it's going to like push us into like a really you know faster track to World War Three. And so I was actually a little bit surprised how how minimal it was, and the media couldn't just say this time. If you notice, they said this last time when he didn't bomb them enough. Like the media couldn't say, like actually blame Trump this time for not bombing Syria enough because it was like the international coalition also did this sort of like minimal short-term bombing campaign. And the only reason I bring that up is because I feel like it needs to be stressed that the U.S. has been waging war in Syria for a very long time, waging a proxy war through like rebel forces and um, and also bombing ISIS, like using American uh, munitions and stuff, that is a form of war. Like, so just because we're bombing, we would be like bombing Assad's forces now. It is an escalation in in a different way, different type of battle in this region. But it's also like we've been at war in Syria for a very long time, and I, I feel like this sort of battle creep has made people sort of forget that and that we have been at war there. Um, so I just wanted to stress that as well. Oh, yeah. No, of course. And I how mean, many civilians yeah, have been dying from not just the rebels, uh, but also our bombing there to yeah. bomb ISIS. Yeah. And here's Trump saying gas killing animal Assad, animal Assad, animal Assad. And all these people are like, you know, if you dare to ask, well, why would Assad gas his own people on the eve of this victory? They're like, you know, what? he's just incomprehensibly evil, Abby. You just can't rationalize it. You just can't rationalize evil like that. That's yeah, their fucking that's their fucking response, man. It's the same it's like these monsters are just so monstrous and brazen that that's why they're doing it. Don't you understand? It's there's the same reason yeah. why we're supposed to believe that Putin w- is so brazen that he ordered some kind of Russian exclusive, you know, unique to Russia chemical weapons attack on this like spy in in broad daylight in the UK. It's like, well, yeah, that's like Putin style. He wants people to know he did it. And it's like He's that insane. It's like he just gets a hard on for dead spies and dead journalists. It's weird how we're just supposed to accept that by default, too. Like, I'm sorry, I cannot believe that on its face. I also cannot believe on its face that what the MI5 said, and I brought this up in the Tom Secker podcast, um, about the polonium accusation 
um, even though even Craig Murray thinks that Russia did that, like the fact that they traced the polonium, the MI5 says they traced it back to P- Putin's presidential headquarters in Moscow, just seems very cartoonish to me. And I, I, I'm surprised more people didn't like ask more questions about that and say, like, where's the proof for this? Like, were you on in Moscow with radiation detectors secretly? Like MI5 implantation into Moscow, like re, like like doing scientific research in the country. Like it just seems I, I, highly unlikely to me, and I would, I'm really surprised more people don't question these these things. That, yeah, like no. the president would be that insane. Uh, that Putin is that crazy. Yeah, and Assad is that evil. Um, really quick points is that Syria, backed by 22 Arab nations um, back in 2003, tried to introduce a UN Security Council resolution to rid the Middle East of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, it was rejected by Israel. Another point is that the U.S. has not only been bombing the shit out of Iraq and Syria for years, but it's also been using white phosphorus, which is a chemical incendiary that burns straight to the bone. And if you tell me that they're not using it for that, you're you're wrong. Um, they don't use it just for a smoke screen. Um, they use it completely indiscriminately. Another point is that back in 2013, Syria gave up its chemical weapons stockpile. Um, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, I'm reading from the BBC right now, implemented an agreement reached by the U.S. and Russia to destroy Syria's chemical weapons arsenal. They they made sure that that happened. They had stringent verification that it took place. Damascus was given one week to submit the comprehensive listing of its agents, types of munitions, and location, form of storage, production, and research, and development facilities. And after they submitted its inventory, the team entered and destroyed the arsenal. So, and the international watchdog confirmed that the declared equipment for producing, mixing, and filling chemical weapons was destroyed. So, I don't, I don't understand what the hell is going on here. I don't understand just the complete willingness of the media. And I know that the public disagrees. I know that polls um, show that I, I, I would hope, um, at least in Britain, that the majority of people do not want to bomb Syria or get involved in a war or escalate what's going on. But it's just, they just salivate at the mouth and, and the egging on um, from the mainstream media of Trump to bomb more, how Trump isn't doing enough. Um, you know, it, it's disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting. And so going back to this desperation of, of looking for someone, something who's countering this. And I think that's where the Tucker Carlson thing came in. But my God, I mean, what a time to be living. Yeah, when Tucker Carlson is like the only one on the mainstream media, defi- you know, like questioning any of this. this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's then a you really have sad people- state of affairs because he's so bad on so many things. And, I, and I know. you know, he's, he's not even good on his anti-war stance if you look at the bigger picture of it so well he just said we need to we need to focus on china i mean and then you have people like Mehdi hassan who i normally love on the intercept on the eve of like this potential large escalation of this conflict saying dear bashar al-assad apologists your hero is a war criminal even if he did not gas syrians i mean i don't even want to go through this article but i think the main takeaway is that here we are on the eve of this potential, you know, escalation, getting into a hot war with Russia and escalating the, the horrible shit that's going on in Syria. And this is what people are coming out and doing. And it, and it really just just reminds us of, of on the eve of the Iraq war, all the pieces that were calling people Saddam apologists, 
um, Ashley Banfield and all these people, Fried Zakaria, all these people on the mainstream media who are lambasting everyone from Dennis Kucinich to Ron Paul for daring to question the war and saying, wow, you sound like Saddam's PR spokesperson. Yeah, even Dan Savage was talking like that. It's very disheartening to see that they're using the, the escalation rhetoric as an opportunity to come out and like excoriate people on the left for not being, for not just coming out and saying Assad is a monster or mass murder, essentially. I mean, that's just very strange because I don't remember Mehdi, you know, even though he sort of selectively would use some good narrative um, angles in his old program, I remember, like about Ukrainian neo-Nazis. I remember he was one of the only people on Al Jazeera who brought that up and legitimized that subject, even though he did that. It's like, I don't ever hear him calling like U.S. uh, military people or leaders monsters or mass murderers. It just seems strange to me that these people are okay using that kind of language about Assad, but they would never use it about our leaders or like Netanyahu, you know? And I find that very telling. It's like, it really does show that there's some kind of, there's something wrong. Because like, I guess, you know, to me, I see someone like Netanyahu is way worse uh, than Assad. It's just such a bizarre thing to do now. But I'm on record calling Assad a war criminal yes, and a it monster. Seems, Where are you? That's a very good point. It does seem like the people who do this and the people who blow around like this during these situations and don't hold down the fort and don't like stick to their principles, it's like they want to look good in retrospect or yeah. I, for some reason. It's an odd, yeah. it's just an odd position to take. It's a credibility protector. It's like saying, I did this. I wasn't a stooge. No one that I know has has said, I love Assad. He's never committed any crimes. He's never bombed anyone. I don't know anyone who's did, who's said that. And Robert Fisk has also even gone like above and beyond to like list his war crimes and say all the shit that Assad has done. Oh but my he's God, still yeah. called a Russian I mean, stooge. I mean, it's just absurd. Of course it's absurd. It just shows how black and white and like psyoped this whole debate has become over the right. years. And I, I believe a very deliberate psyop was tried to, was done to try to fracture the left on this issue. That's why you see democracy now being like full regime change. Um, that's why you see places like the Intercept being like split down the middle on regime change. And frankly, there aren't even really any people writing for the Intercept who are strongly coming out against this these narratives about if if this chemical weapons attack is real or not. So that's telling in of itself that you have them using their air, their space to have narratives like this coming out, excoriating leftists for being too soft on Assad, but nothing really coming out too strongly against these narratives that we're talking about. Just like they really never did anything that strong um, against uh, sort of the Russia hysteria, Cold War 2.0 stuff until, you know, it became a really hot topic that was like becoming like so hysterical. I mean, they really stayed away from that. And um, I felt like they could have maybe helped turn the tide in that, but they didn't. Um, So... You know, I mean, the nation and other outlets were doing a far better job when, you know, they would at least publish Stephen Cohen and people like that in them. Uh, the Intercept didn't have any any voices like that. They frankly still don't on like the issue of Russia. Glenn Greenwald's probably the strongest voice they have, but essentially it's, you know, it's pretty, I don't know. I mean, and what did Glenn Greenwald went on Democracy Now! recently and said there's ample evidence. It's overwhelming that Assad did this chemical weapons attack. I mean, that was bizarre. Is that a credibility saver for him too? I mean, why would he go out there and say that? I, I find that very troubling. You know, we expect yeah. someone like him to at least stick his neck out and be like, you know, you know, I don't know if he did this or not. You know, maybe he could take like the middle ground. 
But like to say that, it's like, really? It's just really disappointing. And let's talk really quickly about how just how, um, how you can't even entertain that notion. Like it's one thing to say, oh, Assad, let's wait for the investigation. Why would Assad do this? Um, let, let's figure this out. Let's, let's wait till these weapons inspectors are on the ground. It's another thing to entertain the fact that it didn't happen, might not have happened at all. Then you're a lunatic, then you're a conspiracy theorist, then you have zero credibility and you should have all of your revenue and advertising pulled from you. I mean, let's just talk about how, how scary that's become, where we can't even entertain known tactics that the U.S. government and CIA, and, and even if it wasn't the CIA or U.S. government, it could have just been the, just groups on the ground that have complete agency away from us that did this. So yeah, why can't I mean, we talk about this? And we don't even know what this is also. It's right. just like the Salisbury incident. So I feel like it's like we have to know what it is first. We have to at least have some kind of consensus on what it actually is that happened. But that's the thing. You can't even, you can't differ from the consensus that it happened and that it was Assad. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that that's what's so disappointing about it. Um, yeah, they really, it really is just about stifling debate. And unfortunately, you know, we have all these sort of more lockstep narratives that are pushing against it. Like, and it seems to just sort of lockstep into this, you know, zero hedge, um, Infowars, Cernovich, you know, all these people who are pushing against this, did Assad do this attack narrative? And it just seemed very lockstep. It's like, even that stuff is not, you know, it's not using like a, to me, like a, I don't know, like a keen sense of like investigative journalism it's it's just sort of more repeating these uh, these these counter narratives and it confuses me in the sense that like I, I eventually like i really feel like i don't know what's happening here and i get a little overwhelmed with seeing you know like i don't buy it some of these counter narratives necessarily either like that this rebel group did it or this other one it's like i don't know like i'm i really don't know what happened here i don't even know what actually happened either so it is really interesting to see like that you know that so many people, but I mean, the good thing is, I guess, that so many people are questioning this right out of the gates and are, you know, even like the fact that someone like Rand Paul would say that is, is really surprising. I feel like that's a much, it's like, it's almost like less risk in saying something like that now than there was before. I mean, maybe, but maybe not. Like at the same time, there's a lot more heat coming down, but, it, but like, it seems like there's more people say, just thinking that out of the gates. I don't know. Maybe it's hard to tell. I mean, that's where we're at with this narrative, where you cannot even question these things without, you know, being castigated and ostracized as a conspiracy theorist or a lunatic. And it's just unfortunate because I, I, I think that in private, a lot of these people would agree. But unfortunately, because it's just been taken off by the alt-right, these, these lunatics who just repeat everything that will absolve Trump, um, people are hesitant. You know, they don't want to be lumped in. They don't want to be called these things. They don't want to be um, written about in the mainstream media as um, as not credible. And it, it just creates a really unfortunate chilling effect where you have to go along to get along. And um, it's just weird because I really don't see many people other than, than Russian media and, you know, Robert Fisk and the just generic alt-right weirdos basically questioning this. Uh, it's really, really unfortunate. So here we are. We don't know what the hell happened. We already bombed Syria. We don't know if it's going to escalate further. But again, what did happen? What happened in both of these instances? What exactly happened? 
We have really no idea. I mean, and there, it, it's also interesting to me that, um, so Rand Paul just came out, this just in the news um, about two hours before we started recording, claiming that he uh, talked personally to Mike Pompeo and Trump. He met with them in the White House. Um, and basically, Trump and Mike Pompeo both agreed with him that the Iraq war was a mistake and that regime change is bad and that it destabilized the Middle East and they promised not to do it again. Um, and now Rand Paul is going to not filibuster and like actually support the, the um, assignment of Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. Um, that's a huge deal in my mind because Trump is, I mean, uh, sorry, Rand Paul has been historically a little bit uh, putting up a little bit of resistance to some of these Trump appointees and mentioning things like he made a big deal about Gina Haspel uh, being appointed as CIA director because of her history with torture and stuff. Um, But it's strange that all it took was a conversation with Trump to convince Rand Paul and make him believe that Trump is like seriously anti-regime change when during Trump's actual speech announcing the bombing, he didn't even make a point to try to ease the public mind about it being a long-term campaign, regime change or not, or anything like that. All he talked about was how Assad was like a bar- barbaric dictator. Um, this is in his actual speech announcing it while the bombing had just started. And I remember right after his speech ended, being truly horrified and thinking, wow, this could really mean full regime change. The way he's describing the that we it, there doesn't seem to be a time limit to it, and then about forty five minutes later, James Mattis came on and basically said the bombing has already stopped. This was a limited strike against the chemical weapons sites. This is not about taking out the Assad regime. Um, and Trump said nothing like that. He didn't even try to like make a point to ease people's minds about this being another full blown war. I just thought that was really telling. And to me, it shows that he just really doesn't care about, you know, this idea of like not launching wars or not. Like he just doesn't, you would think that if he was sensitive to that issue on a personal level, he would want to ease the public mind, but he didn't even care. Even Theresa May made a point in her speech to say, this is not regime change. Just shows how unsavvy he is and how actually he doesn't actually care about these issues. He's not a pro-peace candidate or any of these weird things that I hear people say. Yeah, he just says whatever he knows will help him win. That's the art of the deal, baby. You have Ron Paul sucker him in a little bit, say, no, no, we we won't do this. And he's like, okay, cool. Now I'm just going to nominate Pompeo. Great. Like, what a, what a fucking tool he is. Good God. And everybody's, you know, after this happened, a lot of people took this plat- um, stance where they thought that Trump had been pushed finally into bombing Syria. Um, that this is what happens. It's like the heat, you know, the Mueller investigation has heated up so much that this is like, you got your wish. Look like, thanks to you guys. Thanks to the neoliberal resistance. Now you got your wish. Now he's bombing Syria. It's like, that's to me a little bit, uh, you know, giving Trump a pass here. It's he, they didn't force him to pick John Bolton. Um, so like, it's just strange to me that somehow they always can take their focus away from the, the president himself for deciding to do these things. Um, and Mark Ames said something on Twitter, which I strongly agree with. He said, it's wrong and foolish to pretend that Trump was somehow forced to bomb Syria and hire or hire Bolton. This is who he is. 
He's the humanitarian interventionist president, just as Obama was the bankster's president in spite of his campaign can't. Let the warmongers own their president. I just think that it's very wrong to think that Trump has somehow been manipulated into doing this right now. I mean, it's just very wrong. Yeah, can you imagine can you imagine if we were like defending Obama a year and a half into his presidency, being like Wall Street's forcing him to do this? He doesn't want to do this for Wall Street. He doesn't want to do all these things. He's being forced to by the bankers. Like, can you imagine how ludicrous that would sound? It does sound ludicrous, and that's essentially what a lot of um, like Air America type people were saying about Obama when he first got in. Sad. Yeah. I mean, I remember even a lot of generic Democrats went so far as thinking that his his family must have been being held hostage. And that's why Obama was going back on so many of his promises. I just love that all of a sudden we're supposed to believe Trump at his word during the campaign, like a total con, con artist, reality star charlatan who impersonates other people because he's like a mafioso crazy person. Oh, but everything he said on the campaign about those tokenistic bullshit gestures that nodded to anti-interventionists was dead on. That's what he really believes. Not the torturing families, not the bombing, carpet bombing neighborhoods and, and putting people in Guantanamo and all the, all the rest. No, not, not, a, not that. It's just like the most selective takeaways, you know, it's, it's like he never even politics. ran on an, yeah, he never ran on an anti-interventionist policy. He talked about building up our military stronger than any, like than at any other time in history. That's anti-militarism. That's anti-interventionism. Weird. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's total Rorschach politics. People just seeing exactly what they want to see. Certain people really like the fact that a politician is speaking to their feelings on, you know, why are we meddling over there? Like, Let's get out of there, like, and take care of our own country. Like, the, I mean, they like that he's speaking on that, and it's, like, really exciting to them, and they just, like, choose to latch on to that and not the other things he's saying. It's it's a, it's a serious problem, and I was um, very disappointed at the progressive sort of response to the bombing where, you know, this, there was an opportunity missing to really go after Trump and put this on his doorstep. Just like I've seen, I would have seen some of these same people going after Obama. You know, if they were truly principled, they would have also been going after Trump for this. We need to build an anti-war movement. And the first step of that is, is you know, you have to blame those in power for, for carrying out the wars and the bombing. I don't understand why we can't just focus our, our um, anger and whatever, like our, our actions yeah, well, it, had like to be, it, it has to be some bizarre. larger triangulation that, like, yeah. the deep state or whoever pulled off a false flag in Syria after Trump announced that he was going to pull the troops out to trick him into, like, not, you know, doing that. That's basically ultimately what they, it's like, and it just seems so disappointing that that's what we're left with. It's like, really? Like, you really think that, like, he had to be fooled into it? I mean, come on. Like he he's he he's like he's just did so the deep state Did the deep state write animal Assad gas killing animal Assad on his Twitter? Oh my god! Actually, holy shit! Jack, Jack Sabobiak actually Jack Sobiak said, Sobiak said that. that. Yeah, he did. Oh my god! What a fucking idiot! These people are so dumb. He said, <laughs> "I have a source that confirmed this tweet was not written by Trump." I can't. I can't. Oh, holy shit! Well, again, we, we can't let these people hijack the narrative. There is an anti-war movement. They were, you know, Answer was organizing all these protests all over the country. Hundreds, if not thousands of people went out to protest the bombing. Um, and the biggest thing that we can 
hope for is de-escalation and hope that the U.S. removes all involvement of of of, um, of what's going on. And don't be afraid to question these narratives. I mean, definitely look for yourself. Look at everything that I'm saying. Sort through the, the material, but don't let people you know squash your dissent and marginalize you and make you feel like a lunatic for questioning this because this is what the media does. Um, you can look from Palestine to Venezuela to Syria. It's all the same. It really is all the same. And and it's all the same actors that are pushing these narratives every time. And there's always another side to the story. There always is. It's really insane. So thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Thank you so much for all the donors. Um, Definitely check out Robbie's uh, previous podcasts that we talked about. And uh, thanks for sitting through this one. Let us know what you think in the the SoundCloud timeline. Thanks for listening, everybody. 